my dear brethren and sisters and young people. You'll recall that at our last class in our study of the early part of chapter 23, we were able to see at very intimately close quarters one of the most courageous and yet one of the most heart-rendering experiences in David's life. And he was to have many such experiences as time went on. Because here he was called upon to help his brethren. He asked Yahweh whether he should go. He didn't just simply take off and decide the issue himself. He sought divine guidance. Yahweh said, yes, go. His men were somewhat fearful of the whole situation. And largely to allay their fears, he again approached Yahweh, not out of any doubt in his own mind, but to allay the fears of those with him, to keep his body unified in the spirit of the truth. Again, Yahweh said, go up. So he went up and he dealt with the Philistines and he put them to flight and he destroyed many of them and he rescued the people of Kailah. And instead of rejoicing with him as their saviour, as their antitypical messiah, they rewarded him by betraying him into the hands of Saul. Imagine how David would have felt under those circumstances. His brethren for whom he had done everything he possibly could to help them. And they rewarded him by betraying him. Now we're going to see tonight that the same thing happens again. The things that David had to go through remind us that in our own lives in the truth, this period of probation, as we all struggle on toward the kingdom, we have our ups and downs all the time. And sometimes there are far more downs then there are ups. We find frustrations, we find trials, we find things go against us. Remember the Apostle Paul's comments on all the things he had gone through and one of the last he mentions is and in peril from false brethren. But nevertheless, like David, struggle on we must. No matter what happens, no matter how much the heat is turned up under us to test and to try our faith, we struggle on with our trust in Yahweh and our confidence in Him. That is what we see in David. And so we find in verse 14, which is where we left our study two weeks ago, that David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day Instead of concentrating on the preservation of his people and fighting the real enemies of the truth, Saul was busy fighting the very man who was upholding the truth and standing for the truth and trying to maintain godliness in his life. Every day Saul sought him, but God delivered him not into his hand. And Saul could never learn that lesson that all the time he was fighting against Yahweh. There's a great lesson for all of us to learn in that, isn't there? Because we all know the meaning of self-will. We are all self-willed, in a sense. We know what the truth is. We know what the truth requires of us. But being of the nature that we are, we say with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body dragging me down to death? As the words literally mean in Romans 7. 
We know what Paul felt like because we have the same weaknesses, the same difficulties. But the fact of the matter is that despite all those weaknesses, we have to remain totally dedicated to the cause that we have espoused and to keep our feet firmly in the direction of the kingdom no matter what happens. And so with that in mind, in verse 15, which we take up tonight, we learn another lesson from David. You see, David didn't just blindly rush here or rush there in fear and panic and without thought of what he was doing or where he was going. There's a very significant statement in verse 15. It says, And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. You notice the importance of that word, saw. David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. Now we've spoken often of David's faith and how real it was and how closely he communed with Yahweh over issue after issue, even over what we would regard as perhaps small issues. But David would seek the guidance of God. Here it says that David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. You see what it's teaching us? That faith is very wonderful and faith is absolutely essential as we've seen in David's life. But faith also requires an attitude of diligence, of watchfulness and of carefulness. In other words, we don't just simply fill ourselves up with what we believe to be faith and then sit back with our eyes closed and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, we can just leave everything to Yahweh. We do do that, certainly. But when we say we leave everything to Yahweh, we learn time and time again in the Word that Yahweh expects us to use our intelligence to act wisely and prudently and to do those things that will be in accordance with the faith that we say that we have. For example, keeping one finger there in 1 Samuel 23, come with me to a verse that we know very well indeed in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. And one of the uh, um, uh, parables of the Lord, which uh, we often refer to, but nevertheless, it's a very, very wonderful parable. In Luke chapter 12, and uh, in verse 40, as a bit of an introduction perhaps, we know that the Lord there warns, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. You know, brethren and sisters, we really need to think about that. If David had allowed himself to be caught and entrapped, there would have been time without number that Saul would have taken David and his life would have been forfeit. Because David never left it to an hour when he thought not. In other words, disinterest. But you see, for us there's a very important thing in verse 40. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Now look, we talk to one another about the signs of the times. We sometimes get very excited about things that happen. Momentous events take place and we're all moved by them. And we think, there's another sign that the Lord is near. He's got to be close. But despite all that, the Lord has warned our generation that we need to be ready because the Son of Man is going to come at an hour when we think not. When circumstances will be such that perhaps there will be a lull momentarily in world events. It may be the peace and safety cry, although that may not go forth in its full extent until after the Lord is in the earth and prior to Armageddon. 
But for us that warning is there. Something is going to happen that is likely to lull those who are not really strong in their faith into a false sense of security that perhaps we have a little more time. The Lord might not come just now. So with that in mind, look what we have in verse 46 because this is the lesson that we learn here from David in that statement of verse 15 when we read, and David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. Here in verse 46, the Lord in this parable says, The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. Now we know, of course, that this is the servant who is not diligent. The servant of verse 45, who says, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and drink and be drunken, and so forth. We could speak about that at some length, but nevertheless, we are basically familiar with it. We simply want to make this point from verse 46. So far as that kind of servant is concerned, in the generation of the Lord's return, he says, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware. Now you see, with that in mind, we're going to make another comment on that verse in just a moment, but with that in mind, remember the words we've just read of David, and David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. You see, we've got to be aware of the realities of life and the dangers that confront us. And the exercise of faith does not mean that we blindly ignore the realities of our situation. David had means of knowing and seeing. He did have friends, as we shall see in a little while. But he made it his business to find out what Saul was up to and to try and be one jump ahead. And that was part of his exercise of faith. But you see, here in Luke, chapter 12 and at verse 46, the Lord warns that a servant who is unready and unprepared and has a different attitude of mind and disposition to that which he should have toward the Lord's coming, for him or her, the Lord will come in a day when he looketh not for him. You know what that means, don't you? It means that he's concentrating on other things. The things that we read about in verse 45, for one. He is not looking for his Lord's coming because he's concentrating on other things. And then the Lord adds, and at an hour when he is not aware. The word aware there is the word ginosko, which we know commonly means to know, to have a knowledge of. In other words, he doesn't know. And he doesn't know because he doesn't prepare his mind. He doesn't get his mind concentrated on the situation in which he finds himself, such as we find ourselves in, on this day, in the month of August, in the year 1996, when every one of us knows that at any day the Lord may have come and we may be summoned into his presence. Now, are we those who are not looking for him? Are we those who are unaware? In other words, we do not have real knowledge and awareness of the circumstances of life in which we now live and the times in which we live. You see, David teaches that lesson in that 15th verse, verse with that remarkable little word, David saw that Saul was came, come out to seek his life. And the lesson there is, as we've said, that faith 
is not just simply theoretical. And among many other things, faith requires an attitude of carefulness and of watchfulness and of diligence in our application day by day of the things of the truth. And so in that verse it then goes on to say that David, and it tells us where he was, was in the wilderness of Zip in a wood. You see, he very quickly moved from where we left him two weeks ago. Being aware of Saul's movements to some degree, he was now gone and he was somewhere else. Interestingly, the word wood there is the word Horesh, or Heresh, which we saw was the name of a town less than five miles uh, from, uh, from Zip. And uh, that took us, as we saw, only about four miles south of Hebron, is where we are now. So this is where David has moved to, in the wilderness of Zip, in a wood near Horesh, or Heresh. And now in verse 16, with, with David in this position, and he had had to move there very rapidly with his little band of men, we find in verse 16, brethren and sisters, one of the most wonderful and one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Because verse 16 says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. Now, when we look at that, the first thing we need to just ask ourselves is, how did he know where to find David? When David had moved so quickly with his little band and was now in a different area altogether, and yet Jonathan knew where to find him. You see, that's showing us that David did have friends. He mightn't have had very many, but he had friends well placed throughout the kingdom. And they could convey information as to where David was or was not to those who could be trusted. Just a little point perhaps, but it's important. Because you see, David would have taken great heart, not only from his faith and confidence in Yahweh, but from the fact that although he was pursued by the king and by the king's army, and that the majority in the nation were probably at this time against David, not because they disliked him, but because it was important for them to act, as to use a common phrase, to be politically correct. And therefore it was right to support the king, or at least remain silent and say nothing. And many would have been in that situation. But there were those who were David's friends and would never betray him. And you know, we can all take heart from that situation and having friends in the truth like that. But what is important here is that Jonathan went to David and strengthened his hand in God. It's a remarkable expression, isn't it? Showing the spiritual mindedness of Jonathan. It's very, very humbling to consider that. You see, the narrative doesn't simply say that he went to David to encourage him which would have been wonderful in itself. But it says specifically to strengthen his hand in God. Not in himself, not in Jonathan, not in his few faithful, loyal friends, not in the bunch of men that he had with him who were also faithful and loyal as well, but to strengthen his hand in God. And you see, it seems as though Jonathan, who would have taken an enormous risk to leave the court and to make his way way down south beyond Hebron to seek David out. It could well have been reported back to the king that he had done this. But his friendship with David and his loyalty to David was so great and so compelling that he felt the need to do this. 
You know, it reminds us of Proverbs 27 and verse 17, which says, Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. What a beautiful proverb that is. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You know, brethren and sisters, we need friends in the truth like that. I'm not talking about cliques within an ecclesia. Little groups who are different to all the other groups for some reason or another. Little groups who stand apart from the other brethren or something of that nature. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real, genuine friendship based upon the principles of the truth of which the classic example in these studies is the friendship between David and Jonathan. That's what I'm talking about. And they were able to encourage one another in the truth. And you know, it's a very wonderful thing that Jonathan's desire here was to encourage David in the truth. Something that we must do for one another. It's so very, very important to think of the needs of others. And what a wonderful man Jonathan was. What a tremendously outstanding personality he was as a spiritually minded man. And you see, another beautiful thing about that little 16th verse is that as we understand that this was an hour of great trial for David, it was an hour when he needed a friend. If anyone needed a friend, David needed a friend here. And you see what's behind that 16th verse? That in this hour of great trial for David, Yahweh permitted this meeting to take place. Yahweh allowed that. That David might be strengthened and encouraged by Jonathan with the truth in his hour of need. How gracious is Yahweh. How all-wise and all-knowing. And how wonderful is the situation that we've got here where David is to be the next king of Israel and Jonathan is now the lesser of the two in the sense that he has resigned his right to the throne as we've already seen. And yet here we have an example of the lesser of the two men in that sense going to strengthen the greater. What a wonderful example it is. You see... It's very important for us to remember that those who have to bear considerable responsibility in the truth, in whatever avenue it might be, they need the encouragement of their brethren and sisters. Whereas a lot of the time, all they get is criticism. As we've just had in the example with the men of Kyla. They rewarded David for all that he had done for them by betraying him. You know, sometimes we think of men in the truth. Sometimes I think about men who are perhaps closer to us in terms of, of uh, years, like Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts. And you can't help wondering, sometimes I do wonder, that they were so looked up to and so depended upon by the brethren to strengthen and encourage everybody else. I sometimes wonder how many of the brethren of that generation went out of their way to encourage Brother Thomas and to encourage Brother Roberts. In my own generation, there was probably no brother, but I'd certainly no brother that I know of anyway, who did more for me personally 
and did more for the truth in this country than the late brother H.P. Mansfield. And having known him very, very intimately and very, very closely as a friend for many, many, many years, I do know that Ecclesias depended upon him and they always appealed to him. Sometimes when he was burdened down with work and labour and commitments, they would appeal to him. He would be there as a friend and a guide. Individual brethren would go to him. I've, been, I've stayed at his home when I wanted to discuss something with him and a, a whole day has gone and I'm going to get near him because of a troop of brethren or sisters coming to see him for help and guidance and direction. But I often used to think to myself, how many brethren ever bother to encourage him? And pick him up. And do what Jonathan does here. To strengthen his hand in God. You see, it's very important, brethren and sisters. And Jonathan is telling us, teaching us a wonderful lesson here. And he's, he's even the more humble in all this whole little incident by virtue of the fact that Jonathan was not called to greatness in this life. Whereas David was. He was called to become the king and to be responsible on Yahweh's throne over Israel. But Jonathan was not called to greatness in this life. But he didn't hesitate to strengthen the hand of one who had been called for a high purpose in Yahweh's service. So there are times when, uh, in the absence of favourable circumstances, a quiet and calm trust in Yahweh is our only defence. And Jonathan knew that. He knew what David was going into. He knew what had gone before. He knew that Saul wouldn't rest, that he would pursue this matter until Saul died, incidentally, not to David. Because Jonathan knew what Yahweh had promised. Jonathan knew that Yahweh could be trusted. But nevertheless, he knew that David was facing a situation precisely like that, where he would be in circumstances where his only defence would be his trust in Yahweh. He understood that. And that attitude will teach us patience and enable us to bear up under trial. And also we might add that in this act, Jonathan absolutely, totally, in this final act, dissociated himself from any implication in the guilt of his father so far as the persecution of David was concerned. He showed exactly where he stood. And then in verse 17, he says unto David, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also saw my father Noah. Isn't that wonderful? Fear not, Saul shall not find thee. What's he doing? He's strengthening David's hand in God. Fear not, Saul shall not find thee. Why not? Because David would be under the protection of Yahweh. And this is what Jonathan is doing, strengthening his hand in God. Then I shall be king over Israel, says Jonathan. How can he be so sure? Especially under these impossible circumstances. But he's emphatic. Thou shalt be king over Israel. Why is he so emphatic? Because he believed Yahweh. He knew what Yahweh had said. He knew that David had been anointed. And so, he was a man of faith. He knew that God had promised. Back in chapter 16 and verse 12. There were no doubts in the mind of Jonathan. And he says, and I shall be next unto thee. Gladly, willingly, he accepts 
the lesser position. He doesn't say let's draw lots and see which of us will be king. You see, it's a very wonderful, very beautiful friendship. And David would no doubt have, 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 have honoured his very closest friend for his love and compassion and thoughtfulness at this time. And when Jonathan says, and I shall be next unto thee, was a wonderful thought, but it was not to be. It was not to be, because Jonathan was to die the death of a defeated warrior on Mount Gilboa. And the two close friends were never to meet again in this life, in this present life. They were never to meet again. They didn't know that at this time. But it's a very deeply and a very very deeply touching encounter. And so Jonathan makes this statement, doesn't he? I shall be next unto thee. And he says, and that also my father knoweth. Now that is a very revealing statement. Very revealing. Because it's telling us two things that are most interesting. The first is that Saul, deep in his heart, already recognised the inevitability of failure in his attempt to destroy David. Jonathan seems to be quite definite in that, doesn't he? And the other point is, that Saul recognised the closeness of the friendship between David and Jonathan and that he, Saul, could not do anything, couldn't hope to do anything to break up that friendship or to smash it. But you know, let's pause for a little thought here. Here was Jonathan's desire. Here was his wish. Thou shalt be king and I shall be next unto thee. You know, it's difficult to imagine Yahweh ignoring that. And what a wonderful thought it is to contemplate the lot of these two men in the kingdom age. Sometimes we wonder what position certain of these great and wonderful men of faith of the past will have in the kingdom age. We wonder about it. I've heard numerous very thoughtful, studious brethren make the comment that in view of the fact that David had prepared the temple services everything that was to be done in the temple, that he was so dedicated to that temple and everything associated with it, all the plans for it, all the courses of priests, everything, all that was to be done in it, was all laid out before David died, that he never lived to see it. And I've heard brethren suggest, isn't it possible that in the kingdom age, David may be placed in charge of all the temple services? It is possible. It's not our lot to decide who will do what, which or what in the kingdom age. But whatever it is, we mention that only for this reason, that whatever it is, just imagine David with a high position of honour in the kingdom and next under him, working with him side by side, the faithful Jonathan. I earnestly believe in my own mind that Jonathan will get his wish because of his faithfulness. Not that David will be the king, because David will, in his turn, uh, re- re- give up his uh, favour of his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But whatever position he has, there will Jonathan be next under him. So verse 18 tells us that the two made a covenant before Yahweh. You know something we ought to note about that, brethren and sisters, in verse 18? The two made a covenant before Yahweh. Now, do you know that 
every reference to the friendship between those two men in Scripture makes some mention of the truth. Every time they're together, every time they're mentioned in Scripture, there is always some mention of the truth, showing, of course, their closeness to one another, and that that closeness was based upon their mutual faith and their mutual love for the truth and for Yahweh. It was no mere sentimental or emotional relationship. And the covenant that they made between themselves on this last time that they ever met will not be forgotten. And that covenant will not fail because these two friends, these two wonderful men of faith who had such a deep and abiding love and affection for one another based upon their mutual reverence for Yahweh and his word, they will be reunited and they will renew their association not in times of trial and fear and suffering and persecution, but in time of, a time of joy and gladness. In the wonder and the glory of divine nature in the kingdom together. Now you see, brethren and sisters, those things are very real. They're not just theoretical things that we read out of a book that happens to be the word of God. They're very real. And they're going to be very real. As we shall see, Noah... And all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were all given positions of honour in the kingdom. And others too who have followed on, even in perhaps more, in more modern times. We don't know who's going to be uh, allocated to what or where or whenever. But what we've got to realise in our minds and get it firmly fixed in our minds, that these things are very real. And we've got to get a picture in our mind of David and Jonathan reunited in their friendship and in their work together in the truth in the glory of divine nature in the kingdom age. Isn't it wonderful to think about that? Despite the trials and the terrible uh, traumas and whatnot of this time when they were in this situation. And so Jonathan, it says, went to his house. And that was the end of the matter so far as these two were concerned until the kingdom comes. And so in verse 19 it says, Then came up the Ziphites to Saul, to Gibeah. Here's another bright bunch of uh, brethren, we must say. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Actually, that is better rendered, some men of Ziph went up to Saul. In other words, there is no definite article there. It doesn't say the men, it just says men. Men of Ziph. So therefore, the Jerusalem Bible takes up the fact that there is no article there and renders it a little more accurately, some men of Ziph went up to Saul. Doesn't necessarily mean that everybody was in that. But you see, here is another betrayal of David following on the incident involving the people of Kailah. These others turned him in as well. Just for a moment, let's have a look at Mark, Matthew 24. <coughs> Matthew 24 and... Uh, Verse 10. We know that we have here the Lord and the disciples on the Mount of Olives and we know that they asked him three questions. And uh, they concerned first of all the second coming of Christ, then the signs that would herald his return, and thirdly the end of the age, that is the Mosaic age. And those three questions are found in verse 3 and we know that the Lord answers them in reverse. But look what he says were going to be the conditions of ecclesial life. 
But the Mosaic age was to draw to an end. The pressures that would be mounted upon people. In verse 10 it says, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another. What happened to David with the Kailar people and the men of Zeth? Many shall be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. You see, what the Lord is warning them of <coughs> is that the time of the end of the Mosaic age would be a time of trial, a time of persecution, a time of intense pressure applied to brethren that would even lead them to betray one another, like the men of Zephyr. Something we really need to think about, doesn't it? Of course, there, in the first century, we know they betrayed one another to the Roman authorities to save their own lives. And we feel for the pressure that those brethren were under. It must have been incredible. We can't imagine what it must have been like. But nevertheless, with these men of Zip, they, had, they weren't under any great pressure. There was no reason why they should have turned David in, as it were, to Saul. They could have just kept quiet. You notice they say particularly there that he is with us in strongholds. Couldn't they have let David go his own way, even if they didn't want to support him or help him? It's a terrible situation, isn't it? In the hill of Hakilah, on the south side of Jeshimon. And do you know where David was? There's a little book by Condor, C-O-N-D-E-R, called Handbook. And on page 213 of that book, he speaks of this area in the hill of Hakilah, on the south of Jeshimon, and he just makes this brief statement. He says, It is barren and wild beyond all description. That's where David and his men were. It is barren and wild beyond all description. Let's feel for David at this time. And now Saul is on his trail again. So in verse 20, Now therefore, O king, say these wonderful fellows, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. How wonderful. What faithless men. Men who should have known the law. Should have known something about the truth. You see, they claim that they know the territory so well that they would unquestionably be able to guide Saul to exactly the right place where David was hiding. And you can't really understand it, can you? Apart from the fact that we know what flesh is. You see, the antagonism of the men of Zip toward David, a man of their own tribe, incidentally, one of their own, symbolises the antagonism of men toward Christ, even his own king. With a hand in 1 Samuel 25, let's look briefly at a psalm that we know very well, just to remind ourselves. Psalm 69. We know this psalm only too well. We know that it's quoted in the New Testament in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the, here is the antitype of what we see in David here at this present time. In Psalm 69 and verse 8, this is the Spirit of Christ speaking through the prophet. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. That's where David found himself. What a horrifying situation. Those of your own kin, 
the very ones that you would look to perhaps above all others to support you, to give you some help, to give you a little encouragement and comfort in hour of need. And the Lord has to say, as in effect David did, I become a stranger under my brethren and an alien under my mother's children. And that is one important thing in regard to Christ, in regard to that eighth verse. It says, my mother's children. That was the fleshly side of the Lord's life and his origin. He does not say, my father's children. Because those who are faithful to the truth stood by him, although they were few in number. And yet even the twelve ran away, didn't they? But they didn't actually betray him, apart from the record that we have of Peter's denial of him. But that was hardly an open betrayal, such as was practiced by Judas Iscariot. So they say, come on down. Saul, and we will fix everything up. You don't need to worry about a thing. We know exactly where to put our hand on him. And so here is David now, off again. He knows that Saul is coming, he's got to move. How would he ever become king of Israel? He never doubted, really. Except for moments when he got really down and despondent, as we all do from time to time. But you see, here is a type of Christ. David on the move. First he's here, then he's there. In another place for a short time, then somewhere else. Look, it's the type of Matthew 8 and verse 20 of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had not where to lay his head. That was David. Every night when he closed his eyes in slumber, he never knew whether he would sleep in the same place again the following night. He hath not where to lay his head. And so it's through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom, as Paul, as Paul says in Acts 14 and verse 22. And so in verse 21, just look at this. For Saul's state of mind and his incredible hypocrisy, Saul said to these faithless men of Zip, Blessed be ye of Yahweh, for ye have compassion on me. And the Jerusalem Bible renders it, Saul replied, May you be blessed by Yahweh for coming to help me. How incredibly warped that man's mind was. And really he was a pious fraud. That's what he was. A pious fraud. Notice, remember the last words in verse 17 that Jonathan had said, And that also saw my father knoweth. What a man. And then he adds these words, For ye have compassion on me. There again are all the signs of melancholia, as we describe that disease that afflicted Saul. He obviously considered himself to be a wrong and injured man. And he thinks these men of Zip are wonderful because they betrayed an innocent man. And it's almost as though he's saying, nobody loves me, no one will help me, but oh, I'm so pleased that you men of Zip have taken this position. May you be blessed by Yahweh for coming to help me. And you know what he's doing? And you know what they're doing? They're fighting against Yahweh. And here Saul says, may Yahweh bless you. Yahweh bless men who defy the truth, who don't consider a stand for that which is right in the eyes of Yahweh, who don't defend his word, his honour, his glory, 
who betray his word, who betray the commandments and the principles of the truth, Yahweh bless men like that? No way in the world. No way. So in verse 22, Go, I pray you, says Saul, prepare ye, and know, and see his place where his horn is, and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. He's saying, he's saying, now look, I want to be very careful about this. I want to be very careful about this. I want to know this time exactly where I can put my hand on him. I want to know exactly where he is. Because he says, David dealeth very subtly. Moffat renders it, I am told he is very cunning. And the New American Standard Bible render it in the same way. We might think, well, that's a, that's a stir on David's character. But in a sense, in the meaning of the word uh, cunning, and the variety of meanings that it can have, it's not necessarily wrong at all. What it, what it means is that David was prudent and careful and wise. As we saw in the 15th verse tonight, he saw that David saw was coming. He was aware of it. And we're reminded of the Lord's words in uh, Matthew 10 and verse 16 to the disciples. When he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. David was trying to be like that. He wasn't trying to fight Saul for his right to the throne. Be ye therefore wise as serpents. And that's a word which means to be thoughtful, to consider issues and to be prudent. In other words, it means wise and harmless as doves. That doesn't literally simply mean just harmless. It means to be unmixed in the sense of not being a waverer being honest sometimes and not honest with others at other times. It means being without guile. Being without guile, as the Lord himself was. Now David was like that. And so what Saul says about him in that sense is, is, is right. But anyway, in verse 33, Saul goes on to tell these men, now look, he says, See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hideth himself, and come ye again to me with a certainty and I will go with you and it shall come to pass if he be in the land that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. No doubt about where he is, is there? The Jerusalem Bible renders the opening phrase come back to me when you are certain. So he really wants to be able to put his finger on David without any fear of being wrong or missing out this particular time. So he hears, Saul is coldly efficient in organising the trap that is to be sprung upon David. A trap, says Saul, that will have absolutely no chance of failure. And again he fails to recognise that he is fighting Yahweh. But look what happens in verse 24. David and his men have moved again now. Verse 24 and they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. In other words, this is the men of Ziph who had come to betray David. They went back to Ziph. But, verse 24, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. They'd moved. So with the Ziphites on their way back to try and find the exact hiding place where David was, David has now moved and he's moved three miles to the south of Ziph, according to Unger, and that's where he is. So now they don't know where he is. It's all forest country. In the plain on the south of Jeshimon. 
But literally, that should be rendered in the Arabah, which we know is the Jordan Valley, in the Arabah to the right of the desert. So, here we find that David has changed his position and he's gone completely in the direction where he feels that they're not going to find him at this particular point. You see how there was a need to be constantly on guard against surprise attack. And of course, faith has got to produce that attitude, doesn't it? In guarding our faith. There was a great deal of wisdom in what David was attempting to do. But of course, above all else, Yahweh was in charge of all these events. Yahweh was in charge of everything that was happening. And you know, in a psalm that David wrote very, very late in his life, Psalm 37, just let's look at a verse there for a moment. In Psalm 37, a wonderful, beautiful verse of Scripture. Psalm 37 and verse 5. This is where David stood, and this is where we have to stand as well. This must be our position. Verse 5 says, Commit thy way unto Yahweh. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And the word commit there, as I may have mentioned before, although I have, is a word which literally means to roll upon. And uh, we're told that the analogy is related to that of a beast of burden. How that when you've got something, in fact, you want to transport it across an arid desert, and there's no way in which you can bear it yourself, because it's far too weighty and too heavy and too bulky, you roll it up upon a beast of burden, such as a camel or a dromedary, and strap it on and you, the beast gets to its feet and you lead it across. But he's carrying the burden. He's bearing it. That's what David is saying in Psalm 37 and verse 5. Roll yourself and your burden upon Yahweh. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. What a wonderful mind to have a faith as rich as that. But that was David. And so in verse 26, we find that things change now. Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. We've got a mountain here, and David's men are on one side, and now Saul has somehow or other, David's been betrayed again, although there's no mention here of who's done it. Saul knows where to find him, and he feels he's really got him trapped now. In verse 26, Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take him. Now you see what Saul is trying to do? David has changed position, but David is betrayed. They told David what was happening, what was going on. So it had been told David what was happening with Saul now. So we find that what he does is he comes down here into a rock. You'll notice in verse 25, I think missed a verse, I'm sorry, I went to verse 26, didn't I? Verse 25, Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David, that actually is in the past tense, should be rendered uh, as I recall, and it had been told David, Rotherham renders it in that way. They told David. So what does David do? He came down into a rock, and abode in the wilderness of Maon, and when Saul heard that, more spies, more betrayal, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So, he came down into a rock, and what he'd actually done was, well, I'll, I'll read you Rotherham's translation of that verse, which is more explanatory. 
He had gone down the cliff and taken up his abode in the wilderness of Maon. So in other words, what David had done is to backtrack out of the Arabah into higher ground and then down the mountain on the other side. The idea of the word rock there is exactly as Rotherham translates it. The word rock there means a cliff or a precipice. You see, David thought perhaps he might now be safe. But he wasn't. Because look what happens. Saul pursued after David. Verse 26. Saul on this side, David on that side. Saul admittedly at this time was in the wrong position. But things are moving. David says, made haste to get away for fear of Saul. Word fear there doesn't necessarily mean that he was frightened of Saul. Rotherham translates it, David became hurried to get away from the presence of Saul. That's the idea of it. For Saul and his men compassed David and his men. And the word literally means to encircle, as the word compass does. So the Jerusalem Bible renders it, Saul with his men were trying to outflank David. And Rotherham renders it, Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to capture them. And that's exactly what Saul was doing. Saul had now got one jump ahead. So David's position looked hopeless. What could he do? What could he do? We've already seen what he could do. And he's told us in Psalm 37 verse 5, the principle by which he lived. Commit thy way unto Yahweh and trust in him and he shall bring it to pass. What happens here? Look at verse 27. At this moment of drama, when Saul is no doubt rubbing his hands together and gloating with glee and saying to all the men around him, we've got him, this time we've got him, there's no way he can get away this time. Verse 27. There came a messenger unto Saul. The Philistines have invaded the land. What? The Philistines? See, in itself that might sound strange because we've already seen that the Philistines were constantly making incursions into the land. This must have been more important, and it was, because literally the phrase should be rendered, the Philistines, this is the message Saul gets, at this precise moment, the Philistines have spread over the land. The Philistines have spread over the land, which appears to indicate this time not a mere incursion of a few guerrilla groups or whatever, but a large-scale incursion, a large-scale invasion. And the matter is of such magnitude to require the immediate presence of Saul and his army and his main right-hand men, lieutenants, who was in control of these events? Yahweh. At the very moment when Saul says, I've got him. He can't get out of this trap. A messenger comes up. Saul, you've got to come. You've got to bring the fighting men. We've got to deal with this. It's a dangerous situation that must be dealt with immediately. Just at the precise moment. Just at the right moment. Precisely when it was needed. So Saul has to take off. He's got David within his grasp, but he's got to go. And look at verse 28. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they call that place Selah Hamalikoth. We have to say it very carefully, don't we? But it's a very important word. You know what it means? Well, the margin tells us. The margin's right. 
It means the rock of divisions. You know what it's telling us? It's telling us that Saul went one way and David went another way. They went in different directions. And they were doing that spiritually. This is but a type of what was happening spiritually. Saul was going on one way that was going to lead him to disaster. David was going in another path that was going to lead him to the throne of Israel. And ultimately a divine inheritance in the kingdom. The, the significance of that name, Selah Hamalikov, also denotes a division of thought between the two men. They had different philosophies, they had different beliefs, they had different attitudes toward all the main issues of life. In other words, it points to the situation of the division in the ecclesia at that time, when Saul should have been showing leadership. There was division there. Remember the case of Ahimelech that we dealt with the other night? He wouldn't desert the cause of the truth, would he? And it cost him his life. So that's the way to go in, isn't it? And you see, again we have David saying uh, again and again in the Psalms words very similar to that which we have found in, uh, uh, in uh, Psalm 37 tonight in verse 5. But you know, we might perhaps conclude tonight at this particular point because actually verse 29 begins the new section. It doesn't begin in verse 1. That's why we read on tonight into chapter 24 hoping to get into verse 1. The, the, the vision of, of the, the, the new section of the chapter really begins with verse 29, which we'll take up, God willing, at our next class. But we want to leave you with this. From Micah chapter 7 and verse 8. Here is David's deliverance, delivered by divine intervention, by Saul being taken away at exactly the right, right moment. Micah 7 and verse 8 says this. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh shall be a light unto me. Aren't they beautiful words? From Micah 7 and verse 8. And this is more or less we could put these words straight into David's thought at this time because that's what he would have been thinking. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh shall be a light unto me. And so David is saved once again by the hand of Yahweh. And God willing, in our next class, we shall see where the next experience to come upon David is again a very enlightening one, another turn of events in his life, but all the time, every way, strengthening his faith and the faith of all those who remained loyal to him and saw his faithfulness and the way in which they were being prepared to come out of the darkness and obscurity of nothing into the light of a new day, at the dawn of a new age, when David and his friends would arise to become the kings and the princes over the rejuvenated kingdom of Israel after the death of Saul.